Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Anytime a special guest has the nickname Barefoot Bob, you know the conversation is bound to be interesting and entertaining. That's certainly the case this month as Dr. Rollins welcomes Bob Richardson to the show. He's a man of many talents and many wildlife adventures and a friend of Dr. Dale's for over 25 years. Enjoy the conversation as we go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, thank you, Gary. It's great to hear from you and uh, looking forward to a great podcast this month. But first, let's recap the weather. And man, uh, has mid-September been a blessing and a nice break from what we endured all summer. So a lot of the rolling plains has had uh, anywhere from two to three inches of rain. We we didn't get quite that good at the rolling plains quilt research ranch, but uh, the cooler temperatures that showed up about the 10th September have really been a blessing. And we hope we've seen our last hundred degree high for 2023. I've got a great podcast for you today. It's uh, with an interesting guy. I mean, in my travels across west texas over the last 40 years i've met some really interesting people some of whom you've heard from others have yet to come some of them have passed on regrettably and i missed some great stories there but uh, today's uh, uh, is one of the most interesting guys that i've run across and i hope you'll agree with me at the end of the uh, podcast i often hail our guest as the closest thing texas has to crocodile dundee and he's a naturalist. He's a um, he's an outdoorsman. We're gonna get him more into that. I think my first meeting with him was about 1997 or 1998, uh, when he was doing a lot of guiding over on the Crooked River Ranch with Roy Wilson. And a shout out to Roy and all the folks that historically were there at Crooked River. And we're not going to just talk about quail today. We're going to talk about hogs, rattlesnakes, quail, and beyond. So our guest today is Bob Richardson also known as Barefoot Bob Richardson to most of the folks uh, in this part of the world. So, Bob, welcome. We're proud to have you here this morning. Thank you. Give us a little bit of background on yourself, Bob. Uh, where are you from? Uh, just uh, first of all, Bob, how old are you? I'm 52. Okay. so I mean, 72. I'm sorry. 72. <laughs> I was born in 52. I'm 72 years old. Okay, well, you're a little bit older than me, a couple of years, and uh, uh, again, we've we've lived a lot of this. We know a lot of the same characters, I'm sure. But tell us where you're from, and a little bit about your uh, about your uh, background. Well, I'm an army brat, but oh, from about seventh grade on, I've I've been in Texas. Uh, I've always been crazy about dogs. I always lived in a rural area. Uh, when I was I got my barefoot Bob name when I was eight years old. And back then, you know, the hunting wasn't like it is now. You hunted anywhere you wanted just about. And the the I heard shooting so on the back part of our property. So I went back there to check it out. And it was uh, Sheriff Dave Reese was hunting with some some guys from Mississippi that were kin to him. Anyway, uh grass burrs were really bad where we planted hay and the dogs wouldn't 
wouldn't hunt for the grass burrs. They didn't know how to boot. And anyway, every time they'd shoot the bird, I'd run out and get it. Well, I was barefooted. We only wore shoes to school back when I was young. And uh, everybody got to call me sand spur, and then they changed it to bare, uh, barefoot. Because I'd run out there and pick up birds, and their dogs wouldn't even go. <laughs> Yeah, that's for somebody that's a tenderfoot like me. Uh, that's an impressive uh, bona fide right there. Now, Bob, you're professionally you were a firefighter, correct? Yeah. Uh, when I was 30 years old, I got on the Abilene Fire Department. Before that, I worked in the oil field mostly. I trained greyhounds in Miami for three years. Uh, anyway, uh, during my fire department career. I could uh, work extra shifts during the summer and take off almost the entire hunting season, minus Christmas and New Year's Day and you know special days. But uh, so basically, I hunted the full season the whole year round. Some years I'd be fifty or sixty days and never leave the ranch. Okay, uh, if you don't mind, when you say the ranch, uh, that that was Crooked River. But okay. prior to it being Crooked River. Uh, Coors had at least, and I was there in Coors okay. before Roy, Roy Wilson took over. And I know you weren't barefooted when you were on duty at the fire station, but uh, were you barefooted when you were hunting there at Crooked River? No, not much. Uh, okay. Once I got grown and had to work in the oil field with steel toe boots and over, you know, uh, it the grass grass burrs didn't bother me, but cactus through the toes and stuff did. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if, if you've ever been over there and on the Crooked River in that country, you know it is not nice, nice sandy walking country. It's uh, rocky, gravelly, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, Everything sticks, things or bites. That's right, exactly. Um, let's talk about your early years at Crooked River. Uh, and again, you said you had it before Roy. Well, I don't know exactly when Roy took it over. When I moved down here in 78, I think he was already outfitting it but talk about talk to me about some of the early years over in that part of the world well uh in the early years i did the hog hunting for them but i didn't do i bird hunted but i didn't bird hunt for crooked river uh then after roy took it over i did hog hunting deer hunting turkey hunting quail hunting but mostly quail hunting and i've already interviewed i've interviewed roy here a couple months ago and i interviewed one of your one of our old colleagues horace gore who was a very colorful interview and talked uh favorably about the the people and the the times over there during then so again i know yeah. we've all we've all shared a lot of great memories and got a lot of great um a lot of great memories about crooked river and the, and the folks yeah. we dealt with over there bob it's tell me far and away the best ranch i've ever been on and again, uh, and we'll talk more about it as I get into more about the quail forecast and your outlook on quail and some things like that. But tell me about your early years. You, you talked about when you were eight or nine years old. What, what kept you going uh, again when you were 12, 15, your love for hunting and that kind of thing? Talk, talk to me a little well, bit about that. The sheriff in them days was Dave Reeves, and he was a big bird hunter, coon hunter. Uh, had blood trail blood tracking dogs for for men but i don't know i don't i can't ever remember us running anybody but he did have his bloodhounds and i mean i ran for them all the time and they always found me so they were probably pretty decent dogs but you know we didn't have many 
escapees in Jones County, and Dave was a tremendous man, and he didn't carry a gun. And uh, not when he was on duty. He didn't carry a pistol. That's very reminiscent of uh, Sheriff Pete Cunningham, uh, where I was raised at, up in southwestern Oklahoma there. So special time, uh, for sure, for various law enforcement. Uh, yeah. I, got a, I got a feeling, Bob, uh, and I'm going to tip my hat to an old colleague that passed away back in January, Marty Malin. Marty says uh, he was raised on four-letter words, hunt, fish, trap, and camp. And I sense that you were, too. So, oh, uh, yeah. T tell us a little bit about some of your uh, escapades uh, again during your adolescent years. Well, we we lived in Hawaii for three years, and uh, my dad's he he wasn't always home. You know, he was kind of a they sent him on problems. He went to Tibet, India, Pakistan, teaching packing. He was originally in the cavalry, and. Uh, Anyway, so we was in Hawaii, and I swummed. When we lived in Hawaii, we lived on Oahu, at Schofield Barracks. But I swummed all the major islands except one. Uh, just swum from island to island. Sometimes I'd be gone three or four months. But, uh, and I'd get a beating when I got back. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't too worried about it. Anyway, in Hawaii, nobody can starve. I mean, there's bullfrogs in every little puddle of water, and there's water everywhere. Fruit grows everywhere, and something's right year-round. So it it was my first start at being a kind of out on my own. Uh, at that time, you know, the little towns in Oahu, uh, most of the people were of Japanese descent, and they they didn't like soldiers or us, so you couldn't live off base or anything. But in the mountains, you didn't hardly ever see anybody. Anyway, so I got, I had a lot of luck there. And then I picked up snares that some of the local guys had set on the military ranges. And uh, I got to snaring hogs. So my father's company would have uh, barbecues and I'd catch the hogs. Well, uh, I got called into the base commander's office. And of course, she'd call my dad first. And I thought, boy, I'm in big trouble. I was trying to think of what I'd done to get in trouble. Well, when I got there, he asked my dad if he could talk to me. And my dad said yes, but my dad was red-faced mad. You know, he thought I'd done something serious. But anyway, all he wanted, his, his wife wanted to have a luau. And he had heard that I was, I'd caught hogs for several of the different companies than my dad's. And he just wanted some hogs for the for his wife's luau, so I got to technically, so they, uh, we weren't allowed off base, but I roamed the mountains constantly. And uh, so anyway, I caught, I set a bunch of snares since I wanted to be sure I caught something. Anyway, I wound up catching like six hogs, and after I caught them, the MPs drove me around to the different hogs and called them out, because it's no way I'd, at eight years, and 10 years old, whatever third grade is, I was in third grade, uh, could have hauled them hogs out. So anyway, after that, every time anybody wanted a luau or something, I got so trap hogs. So you could have been called luau, Bob, then just pretty easily. Oh, yeah, I could have been. 
Bob, who would you list as some of your mentors during your? Uh, well, Dave Reeves was a big, big time quail hunter, and uh, I got a lot of access. We were one car family, and you know, if I couldn't go horseback, I couldn't go. So with Dave, you know, I got to go just about anywhere I wanted, and you know, my dad was big on. He didn't consider hunting. He called me his lazy son because I hunted. But uh, anyway, he wasn't going to argue with Dave. And so if Dave wanted me to go help him do something, I got to do it. Otherwise, I'd be hoeing something I just hoed last week. Well, I think you've already, listeners, I think you've already begun to appreciate uh, that Bob is a man of many skills. And we're going to touch on several of them. But I'm going to flash back. Uh, to again about 1999 and i had a group of three bob white brigaders that were taking quail hunting over at crooked river ranch and and uh i'll make the story pretty short but that first morning uh, roy wilson went with us and his dog bandit and treat a bobcat and one of those boys shot that bobcat and so now they've got a bobcat to take back into the headquarters there at lunch and i asked him i said what are you boys gonna do with that bobcat and they said well we're gonna skin it and i said well all right and about that time barefoot bob walked in the front door now you were barefooted that day coming in yeah the i run around barefooted i just didn't hunt barefooted yeah and so uh you got talking with the with the three kids there were two boys and a girl and made a big impression on them because you had an alligator gar scale on your as a pendant that i swear was bigger than a silver dollar we'll talk more about that in a minute but you you asked those boys what are you gonna do with that bobcat and they said, well, they looked at each other and said, we'd like to skin it. And you volunteered to help them skin it. And and I swear, it didn't take you five minutes to skin that bobcat. And I've heard you have that same prowess with skinning deer and, and those kind of things. So don't don't feel bad about bragging on your skills here. But but uh, where did you, uh, well, how long does it take you to skin a bobcat or, or a whitetail deer? Um, a whitetail deal, probably five minutes. but. During the fur heyday, I skimped for the fur companies on Friday and Saturday nights and Sunday nights. But if I skimped 100 or more coons, I could average two minutes. Wow. <laughs> and coyotes, would, I could average four. And bobcats and fox are about like a coon, maybe a little easier. But uh, so sometimes, uh, you know, I would score, skin four or 500 one night. As the fur buyers would come in, I would skin everything unskimped that they brought in. So, but anyway, the the Jews from New York that had the fur, owned all the fur companies at the time, uh, and Bill Wallace, who was our manager, they would send me, fly me to different places, and have skinning contests. And uh, I was never beat. One time, I could have been beat. But uh, the way they had the rules set, they had piles of coons, and most of the places didn't have coyotes, which is my specialty anyway. But a coon, fox, bobcats, and we'd pick 10 of each. And when we got to skinning, the time stopped. But uh, one black guy out of uh, Jeffersonville, Georgia, I mean, big as a mountain, and uh, he would have beat me, but he tore one coon in half, and that cost him five points. Anyway, I, I beat him only because he tore that coon in half. 
you know, he was so big and stout. Once he got it started, he just ripped the whole thing off. Uh-huh. Well, that's, but, I've, I've dabbled in that over the years, as I'm sure many of our listeners have. And, uh, Number one, anybody can skin a coyote and whatever you said, three or four minutes, and then yeah. had had the stomach to to uh, skin some of those. That I know a number of those hunters because my dad-in-law hunted with greyhounds. I know what they look like sometime when they showed up. Yeah. So, uh, you you must have uh, either a no sense of smell or uh, you you chewed a lot of red man in your life or something, and you got over that. So well, I chewed until I was probably twenty, and I when it when went from a nickel a plug to 15 cents a plug and you can tell how that time was i wasn't going to get 15 cents a plug i was too tight so i quit chewing Had well, to chew and if you listeners are wondering what does skinning have to do with chewing tobacco well i learned way back early that when i watched the veterinarian pull a calf had been dead in a cow about three days and he was down there and I said, how do you stand that smell? And he says, well, you chew tobacco because it robs you of your sense of smell. And so as I went on to grad school and, and cutting up quail and so forth, I, uh, I learned that. And uh, so I never liked to chew tobacco, but I told people I'd rather have the heartburn than the dry heaves. And so I would chew some Levi Garrett when the time came kind of thing. Um, now, Bob, I'm different a while ago. You showed those kids a scale off of an alligator gar. And again, as back in the late 90s. But I think you said you held the state record for alligator gar or you had a really big one. Like, No, I never held the state record. I had held lake records. Okay. Uh, and the talk to us just state real- record was 305 pounds come off a trot line. All mine were bow shot, but uh, I've held the record at Amistad for three three times. I helped the record one time at uh, Falcon, which has been beat. All of them have been beat. And I helped the record at Sam Rayburn. The one at Sam Rayburn, they they studied it, and it was 67 years old and weighed 187 pounds. Wow. Uh, uh, the, ones, the ones from De- Del Rio or Amistad, uh, they, nobody ever aged them. They wanted a gill plate, and I wanted to save the head. So, well, you made a big impression on, especially on those two boys. They were probably fourteen years old, and and yeah, they basically said, "Boy, we want to live the life of Barefoot Bob." And then I, uh, the next day, the next morning, Roy couldn't go, and you got it, and so they got to spend the morning with you. But I think after they learned that you had been up till two o'clock in the morning hunting hogs, and then you you stayed up to get the goose hunters out at three 30 and then you started quail hunting about seven 30. The, you wore some of the luster off that as what, as far as what they thought they wanted to do for a living, but let's move to your wheelhouse. What I'm going to call your wheelhouse. And I know that's feral hogs. And I, again, the first time I met you, my colleague, Billy Higginbotham and I were over there. You took us out, had your hog dog up on the hood of the pickup and uh, they struck one, struck a trail or whatever and went to barking and, you jumped that fence, and by the time Billy and I could make our way out there, you come back carrying two 80-pound pigs over your shoulders tied up with pig and strings. Uh, so, again, you impressed us uh, with that. But but give us a little background about your hog hunting. Okay, hog hunting. Uh, I've done it since probably, first, well, first place in about 68, they outlawed uh, hog cholera vaccine it was a live vaccine and every dog every hog it was vaccinated become a carrier so we had very few wild hogs few but not a lot 
and you know back then if i caught five or six hogs a year it was a big deal and then as soon as that vaccine they outlawed that vaccine and oh, wild hogs went crazy by by 71 i was catching 25 or 30 a year and by 78 i was up into the several hundred but and also you know when they got to be thick they got to be worth money and hell i was making more of a living off hogs than i was anything else so i did lots of hunting and you've had some national notoriety on feral hogs have you not oh yeah I, uh well i won the world hunt i think i don't know i think it probably 2004 or five and i won lost Murano's four years in a row so you know I, back when we were hunting wild hogs which they're still hunting wild hogs but now there's so much money in it everybody has feeders and they feed them all year long so you know wild hog eating what he can get if he weighs three or four hundred pounds he's a monster well then hogs have been eating corn for two years you know they may weigh six or seven hundred pounds well I, what i was referring to uh, haven't you been on uh, nightline or new york oh, times yeah. or uh, something like yeah, that Yeah, new york times i've been on new york times they did a, they they hunted with me for a whole week and did a a full page ad on me uh, now i can just imagine you taking some folks from new york and, and i know that you uh you get in close and personal with those hogs and the dogs. I bet their eyes were as big as saucers. Oh yeah, especially when you catch the big boars. The whatever the producer is or the lady who did all the talking, uh, she we we got her to tie one about eighty pounds, but we had a boar weight about two fifty when she decided she was going to tie him with three inch blades, and she took one look at it and she <laughs> she didn't want anywhere near it. Bob, real quickly, tell us what your preferred method is for hunting hogs. Of course, hog hunting with dogs is a sport. And if you're talking about money, trapping is far and away the most productive way. But, uh, and tell you us know, about getting into the hogs or tell know, us when, about I, when I started trapping too, I, I usually run about now, the last two years with the drought and all, the hogs have been thinner, but I usually average about 1,800 sellable hogs a year. And when you say a sellable hog, uh, uh, the, buyers, the buyers, up. I was going to say the buyers don't want the little ones. And so, no, and, and again, want the little ones. and for our reader, for our listeners, uh, those larger hogs are basically sold as, as labeled under wild boar and sold to places like Europe and different places and bring a yeah, premium. Almost everything i buy for southern wild game and everything goes to europe that's no, nothing goes in the united states that's and that's the bigger it. stinkier boars the best they like them <laughs> hard to believe i'd take an 80 pounder any day but uh, yeah. uh anyway i gotta tell another story here now in 2011 we had a bad rash of wildfires uh, across West Texas, and one of those was called the Swenson Wildfire, and it uh, happened just north of Swenson, up uh, burned across part of Bob and some country that he was taking care yeah. of. And so I took several of my technicians over, and we met with Barefoot Bob because we were wanting to start a little research on that. And so I'm showing up at Bob's house, and I've got three or four technicians in tow, all out of state. 
uh, and a graduate student. And then when we get there about, I don't know, 5, 36 o'clock, and Bob's out there feeding his dogs. And he's in what I call classical barefoot Bob attire. He's got his brown bib overalls on with a white T-shirt and his white rubber boots on. And I think you said you were feeding at the time about 35 dogs. And, yes, sir. And uh, we asked you what your what your mix was, and you said pointers and pit bulls. So talk to you about your breeding program. Okay. My hog dogs have went back from uh, the early 70s, and I've just bred my best to the best. So they're probably over half plot. A quarter blue lacy and a and a quarter black mouth cur, but they're my bay dogs. You you can pick up in the old days. You could pick up a pit bull anywhere, and three out of four of them would catch. It might not be by the ear, but and since I'm selling these hogs, you can't have a chewed up butt or chewed up front leg. You know we're selling the meat, so I don't I can't keep a catch dog that isn't an ear dog. Anyway, so my pit bulls are, I don't necessarily breed them. I pick them up where I can. Right now I'm breeding them because I'm using either three-quarter pit, quarter greyhound, or half pit, half greyhound. But I thought it was odd that uh, you mentioned that you, at that time at least, you were crossing pointers with your pit bulls to, to give, yes, the, I the pit, give the pit bulls more stamina. And I thought that was a pretty interesting cross. It, it was more distance, yep. Uh, and pointers are gutty, you know, almost... I'd say 80, 90% of your pit pointer crosses and catch solid. And probably only about 50 or 60% of your greyhound pit crosses are pit solid. But, and, you know, the pointers have a better nose and can find the hogs without bay dogs better. Well, However, I, you know, now we're doing a lot of field hunting where, uh, you know, we're catching on wheat fields and we may catch three or four out of one herd. So we don't want a dog in our speed. We call them speed dogs or bay dogs. The speed dogs, we don't want one that's got a good nose because it may take an hour to get the hog out. Where if they catch them while they're still in the open field or open pasture, we can drive up to them and load them. Well, I wish we could talk for an hour on the hog because I'm fascinated by a lot of that. And again, uh, as a kid, we run greyhound, staghound crosses. We didn't have hogs. Just running coyotes up there in southwestern Oklahoma. But we don't, we don't have time to get off of that forever. Uh, let's talk about trapping real quickly because um, I'll never forget that you gave me some advice, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago, and, and your advice for trapping hogs was, and I quote, bait a lot, trap a little. That's the, you'll catch twice as many hogs. The more you bait and the less you trap, the more hogs you'll catch. Now, Bob, I, I sense that there could be some uh, contention over the last 10 years because here you are a houndsman and, a, and you know, a, a hog trapper. And then you've got the influx of the helicopter aerial gunning. And then you've got the whole uh, night hunting uh, thermal scopes and that kind of thing. What kind of, uh, are there plenty of hogs for everybody or is there beginning to be competition among the, the tribes? There's beginning to be competition. I mean, uh, everybody's got as much right to hunt as the next guy uh i'm a little i'm surprised we hadn't had more deaths on the thermal imagers because well i'll tell you uh two years ago we were hunting a maize field that had been cut and it was maize stubble and we used a thermal imager not on a gun just a, a thermal imager we spotted two laying down hogs out in the maize stubble 
So anyway, I got down one of them, sent the dogs in there. Dogs went in and run all the way around them two hogs. Then they come back. And I thought, what kind of, I was really pissed at the dogs. So anyway, I walked them out there. Well, them two hogs was two kids that had walked out in that maze field hunting hogs. And uh, they laid down to hide because they didn't have permission. If I'd have been shooting a rifle in in the May stalks, you could just see the the white, white, you know, the, you couldn't t see it perfect like you can if they would have been a wheat field. Somebody would have shot them two boys. You know, they're about 15, 16 years old. Yep, certainly. So, you uh, know, it's a risk and hazards you know, with everything, but yeah, your point is yeah, well there taken. Is. Point is well taken. I want to move on. Uh, one of the other things that, again, I've just heard so many stories about you, and you set me straight, is rattlesnakes. So I want to talk a few minutes about rattlesnakes. Uh, I understand you've been bitten a time or two. I've been bitten five times, and my son's been bitten once. And uh, I've only been bitten one by a snake I wasn't messing with. Otherwise, I was just careless. The, so are, the one so are you naturally vaccinated now i don't know uh i don't think i'm not sure about the vaccination i've got you know no i vaccinated my dogs at one time but nothing now is vaccinated uh my boss's dogs have been vaccinated but they swell up just as bad as the unvaccinated dogs so i don't know how much good it does but if it makes people feel better that's good well, let's talk about you personally. Like I said, you said you've been bitten five times. Now your neighbor, uh, who, who we, we all like, is Rick Snipes. And Rick tells a story about you knocking on the door one night and asking his wife, Lana, for uh, three or four Benadryls because you got gotten snake bitten kind of thing. I'm not saying you recommend that, but uh, any truth to that? Yeah, it's it's true. And she had a whole package, and I took them, went home, slept about 12 hours, and hardly swole up. But <laughs> I got snake bit right in front of his house. You know the where his dry, driveway goes to his house is. Uh -huh. There was a sack, of, a dog food sack laying in the road. So I reached down and picked it up, and there was a snake under it, and he bit me on the thumb. And uh, so hell, I just run to that house, took Benadryl. We give injectable Benadryl to our dogs when they're bit. And if you catch it, if you can see the snake bite him and give him Benadryl, he won't even swell up. You can hunt him the rest of the night. But if he's been 15 minutes ago, it doesn't do much good. Hmm. Well, can I ask you, let's say we got a 50 pound bird dog and you see it bit, well, how much Benadryl, liquid Benadryl do you give it? We give them that one CC. Uh, luckily or unluckily, my son's allergic to wash stains. So he carries a, those thick pins of Epi uh -huh. and he carries the Benadryl. So we give him that one, it's a little glass bottle and it's got maybe not even a full CC. It ain't very big. You just break the top off and so we've done that on a dozen dogs that were running down the road. You know, a, a lot of times I'll rode the dogs down the road to smell a hog off the road and they'd run over a snake and usually the second or third dogs when it gets bit. Anyway, we'd see them get bit and we'd hit them with that Benadryl and hell, by the time you strike the next hog, they're ready to go. Yeah, like I said, I'm, um, I, I'd love to visit with you all day about some things like this. And uh, you know me, whenever we meet, I've got a lot of questions for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about something, Bob, that uh, again, I know that, that you're a naturalist. You've been out there all your life. Uh, 
got a lot of observations. Uh, we might not always agree on them kind of thing, but one of them is, uh, you know, there are, there's an, it, well, I won't call it a myth yet. I won't get your opinion on it. What is your opinion on the fact that uh, the rattlesnakes don't rattle like they used to because of the feral hogs eating them? My opinion on that is, I think that's a total falsity. Uh, I don't know if the Higginbottom is talking about Leroy, but Leroy used to buy fur when I bought fur, and he, then he bought snakes. So he would come and pick up. I'd save all the snakes. We called snake, rattlesnakes gas snakes. We'd catch them all, put them in a sock behind the seat of the pickup when they put them in my snake barrels. Well, Leroy Higginbottom would come by and buy the snakes and leave a check in the mailbox. Well, he, for a long time, when we didn't have all the feuding with Korea, Korea was buying the meat and United States and China was buying the skin. Well, uh, after Korea, we couldn't ship it to Korea anymore. He had a couple barrels of, of rattlesnakes. Well, I had 10, maybe 200 hogs waiting to get sold. So we dumped them rattlesnakes in my pen. They rotted. The snakes never ate them. Really? Now, if they won't eat a dead snake, why would I think they would eat live snakes big time? Well, again, um, interesting observation and um like i said uh, most people most of the professionals consider it an internet myth but i was curious what your opinion was on it now i gotta go back to that meeting that i took those technicians over to your house and uh, we started in the house uh, you stopped me at the door and looked back at me and the the technician right behind me his name's jordan he's my size and you turned around and looked at us and said i got a cat in the house but i don't think it'll bother you and me and Jordan look at each other and say, now, why would a cat bother us? Well, we get sit down on your sofa in there, and here comes a big old tall bobcat, about a 32-pound bobcat. So, And it turns out you had two pet bobcats at the time. So tell us just a little bit about uh, raising your bobcats. Well, uh, when I was teens, I, I've always had a pet bobcat. And uh, the one of them lived to 27 years old, and I won't mention any names, but uh, somebody stole four of my dogs and my bo pet bobcat at 27 years old to let their pit bulls kill them. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so then after him, you know, I've never purposely went out and caught a bobcat, but usually if somebody runs across kittens, they'll wind up giving them to me. Uh, our sheriff here has given me two or three, but the one you're talking about, uh, he died this last winter and he was, I don't know, 30, 40 years old. Wow. Uh, While we're talking about him, I want to fast forward to uh, the snowpocalypse event uh, in uh, February 14th of uh, 2021. Because uh, as y'all will know, as many of you remember, we had a tremendous snowstorm, ice storm kind of thing. And lasted three or four days. And so I began to call folks and say, did you see any direct mortalities on the quail? And you were one of the few that I found that actually saw quail frozen on the ground. So re real briefly, tell us about that. Well, yes, sir. Uh, I found whole coveys. I was hunting through it, and I had paid hunters then. And uh, we would point a bird, and there'd be one live bird fly 20 feet. Couldn't go no further, and there'd be 10 or 12 dead birds in the, laying on the ground. And I think that one day we found like five coveys of dead birds frozen to death or in the roost whatever killed them i don't know but they were dead and it it, it was during that 
bad snowstorm, so I suspicion the snowstorm had something to do with it. Well, and, and again, um, there's a lot of questions, you know, about what was the uh, larger impact of that weather event on quail that year. And boy, it took a toll on doves, uh, took a toll on songbirds, and I think it took a toll yeah, on road, road runners, those kind of things. Uh, but yeah, that was a late snow, and uh, the lady who used to run the food, uh, the feed store, you know, I had a bobcat, and she called and said, I've got a bunch of dead birds in my barn. So I went to her her horse barn, and I picked up a over a half of a five-gallon bucket of bluebirds, which, you know, they only come through my part of Texas during the, when they're migrating north. But it and I make you sick. Just the whole ground was covered with these little dead bluebirds. I, I don't know if the freeze got them or the starvation got them. And, uh, but, and I, dead doves were everywhere. And I brought that up because uh, when I asked you about something about those dead quail, you said you'd fed them to your bobcat. So that's why I brought that back up with the bobcat story. Yeah. And, and I got one other thing to follow up on that visit with, with Bob at his house that night. And, and folks, if you're ever uh, blessed enough to spend some time with, with Bob at his house and you, he tells you to go over and get a drink of water or whatever out of the refrigerator, if you see socks in the refrigerator tied up, be careful because what's in those socks, barefoot? Well, that's rattlesnakes. Uh, <laughs> I had a girlfriend, oh, best girlfriend I ever had, probably 20-something years ago. Her name is Sue Collins. And when she first met me, she was going – you know, I just dumped my dirty clothes behind the seat of the pickup, single cab pickup back then. So she went back and got all my dirty clothes out of my pickup. And, you know, if you pick up a sock and it weighs pound and a half, you would think there's something in it. But she didn't. She had untied the knots in the socks and throw them in the washing machine. Well, then she comes screaming. I was doing something. She come out screaming, screaming. The washing machine. It's full of snakes. It's full of snakes. So I thought, well, a whole little bull snake or something went up the drain line and got in the washing machine. When I opened it, it was full of snakes, <laughs> all rattlesnakes. She had dumped all them socks in there. <laughs> and after that, she would not touch a sock, and she wouldn't open a bucket. I don't think I blame her too much. Uh, uh, okay, moving moving on, there's, there's two other stories I want to tell real quickly. Uh, you had some input on one of them was back in 2010 12 we were put, trying to put gps collars on coyotes bobcats and raccoons to study how they affected quail nesting and so forth and i wanted to trap some badgers we had some extra radio transmitters and we want to put some on badgers and we see badgers occasionally but i called bob up i said you know i've trapped enough coyotes you know you'll catch one occasionally but if you wanted to catch them if you set out to catch a badger how would you do it do you remember what you told me bob well, usually I just run them down, but uh, if you find a badger den, you can set a trap in it and use rotten meat and bury it, and you'll catch them pretty easy. Well, you told me about running them down and wrapping them on the back of the head with your knuckles. Oh, yeah. You can just thump them on the back of the head. where you, they knock, you can knock them cold real easy. You can just run them down and just thump them in the back of your head with your knuckles, and uh, it'll knock them cold and grab them by the hair of the back of the neck right next to their head and they they can't do anything they can't turn and bite you and they can't claw you and then just stick them in a toe sack and my response to bob was i think that's a little bit too western for my crew but i'd love to see you do it sometime <laughs> and now let's let's move forward because i called you most recently because we hope to hold a porcupine avoidance 
training day on Saturday, October 21st, just about the time this podcast comes up. But it's all contingent on whether or not we have a live porcupine. And so I've got Bob on point to catch me a porcupine, and he's assured me he's going to be able to. So tell me what how you'd catch a porcupine, Bob. Well, you know, they're not very fast. You can walk faster than they can run. Well, there's, there's no quills on the hair of the nose. So if you just kind of get them, they'll swell up after a little bit. You can reach down and get them by the skin right on the, on the head, top of their nose, and you can pick them up, put them in a bucket. Or you can just take the bucket and stick it over the porcupine. Well, They're easy to catch. And I've, I've uh, you know, snake-breaking dogs works, but nine out of ten bird dogs that get bit aren't bit because they're messing with the snake. They, get, they run across it and get bit. So, I, I mean, it, it's got to help, but I don't know if it's 100% effective. But a porcupine, they know it's a porcupine, and, and snake breaking them on porcupines works real good. Some of the bulldogs, it's caught two or three and absolutely turn green-eyed when they smell one. You can't break them. But if you start them on a porcupine in a cage and bump them with a 16 a few times, uh, they won't have anything to do with it. Well, to me, the quill's got to hurt worse than that shot collar, but shot collar works with the quills don't that uh that's that's what that's the premise that we're working on is that we can use the same uh, stimulation technique as we'd use for a rattlesnake and just put that porcupine in a cage kind of brush it up and and work that so uh, if you want to find out more about that well uh contact me d rollins at quailresearch.org or, or watch our newsletter and uh, we'll hope we'll do that on saturday october 21st um and uh, that brings up you know, one other point, Bob. You talk about those bird dogs being uh, good catch dogs and it, solid catches, I think, is what you'd call. Yeah. They're also solid catches on porcupines. It's been my experience. Now, I run setters, and, and I haven't had that big an issue with them. But, the folks, it seems to me like they have the worst problem with porcupines, have pointers or German shorthairs. You're exactly right. Or for duck hours or German wire hairs, either one. They all are bad on porcupines. And it's, I mean, I know I won't mention one of my board members. I uh, had a dog that um, got porcupine pretty bad. And uh, and like two weeks later, he got back in another one. And it was like as if that dog was saying, you got me last time with a lucky punch, but I'm going to get you this time. And, of course, he did. Once they get one, they hate them worse every time, and they will just go crazy over them. In fact, they'll look for them. And you can smell a porcupine. A man can smell a porcupine from 50, 60 feet. Uh, so you know the dog can smell them by 800 yards. They, they, they really stink. They've got an odor. And you, you talked, I was asking you about kind of when you began to see porcupines in that area. And again, we're talking Stonewall, Jones County, right in that southern Rolling Plains. And yeah. I, think, I think you told me about 78. Is that what you told me? Yeah, the late 70s, early 80s is when they first showed up. I'd never seen one in my life except in Idaho and other states. And then all of a sudden they showed up, and within five or ten years, we've got them all over the place. So I tell the listeners, again, we are looking for a live porcupine. Uh, we've got to have a live one. And so if you find one up in Afghan pine or whatever, if you'll give us a holler, we'll come We'll meet you or come get it out the tree. Or again, we're 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 hoping Bob will be able to provide us with one. I'm hoping so. Trip. So it looks like I need to get on the ball and run down to San Angelo and pick them up. Yeah, That's where I, the thickest. 
That's that's your homework assignment, Bob. So. <laughs> okay, I will get on it. Let's let's talk. Uh, we're we got about twenty minutes left, and we've talked about a lot of interesting things and a lot of your interesting experiences. But let's bring it back to quail. And so, tell me about your background in quail hunting. Well, uh, like I say, uh, when I was in about eight years old, that's when I got started. And after I got started, uh, uh, people from Arkansas, Mississippi, wherever Dave Reeves' kinfolk were, would come down and hunt. And uh, if he was busy, which he usually was, I'd take them. And uh, they'd leave a bird dog that showed a little potentials, and I'd keep him. Well, hell, the next time they'd come, they'd buy him from me. And you got to remember, money was scarce back then, you know. I'd hold cotton 10 hours for two dollars a day well hell they'd give me a dog come back four weeks later after he'd been on a few birds and been shot in the butt a couple times then we didn't have shot callers uh and then they'd give me 25 50 dollars for him and you know my dad he wasn't a waster and he didn't believe in feeding a dog it wouldn't do anything and he didn't he'd rather trap quail than shoot them so uh, I didn't keep many dogs, but once I got to getting $20, $25 for a dog that somebody gave me two weeks ago, it just blew his mind. And uh, from then on, I could keep all the bird dogs I wanted. I had to buy the feed, but. Well, again, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some questions about quail hunting and it's, it's not necessarily direct observations that I've had with you, but it's your it's your lore from some of the people that that do know you and have hunted with you, and and I've been told again by you by your neighbor over Rick Snipes that your ability to locate a down bird is nothing short of amazing. So, uh, what are any tips there about uh, having a hunter find a down bird? Well, the best thing is have a good dead bird dog, and only a few of them are good, and the last. 10 or 15 years, I've always either run a short hair or lap just for finding dead birds. But the marking down's a big, big deal. But that's just experience and paying attention. You know, when you're shooting, you're not going to mark your, everybody's birds down. When you're guiding for years and years, you know, and hunting an average of five or six days a week, you just get good. My son's probably better than I am. Well, let's talk or about you. better now. Well, you're a couple of years older than me, and I, uh, if your eyesight's begun to fade like mine, yeah, I know exactly what yep. you're talking about. Um, let's talk about some of your experiences and your recommendations based on those hundreds or thousands of quail hunters that you've taken out there. Uh, what shot size do you recommend for Bob White? I know it's when a lot of people are going to the bigger shot size. Your average quail is 20 yards or less. And I believe in nines. With nines, uh, you've got half a Guinness mint shot as you do with seven and a halves. And it, it, that means you're going to hit him three times instead of two times. So I'm I'm a big believer in nines. And and again, I I know that a lot of people are recommending sixes these days, and they've got their. I've own. seen that, but I'm a dead set against it. You yep. get a lot more wounded birds with sixes than you will with nines. And, and I shoot nines, eights, and nines. And I tell people, 
again, I'll I'll kowtow to some of them that talk about those sixes, but I say if you got a good dead bird dog, and, and historically I've had a good dead bird dog. And see, that's a big advantage over setters over pointers. Uh, a high percentage of setters are good bird dog, uh, dead bird dogs. The higher percentage of short hairs and wire hairs. You know, if I only had to have one dog, I'd run a wire hair. I've never had personal experience with those, but that's, um, I know that, you know, I tell people there's good dogs in every breed. And I know you'll. Every breed. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, double guns versus uh, semi-automatics. If you've got a group, of, if you've got a group of two or three hunters coming, what kind of shotgun do you like to see them carry? Gauge, uh, action, or do you have a preference? I have a preference. I want every bird dead. I want to pick up every bird we shoot. I feel like over half of your feathered birds are dead birds. We just don't recover them. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in 12s. And 20s are okay, but anytime you get into that, well, since he's not from Texas and he's probably not ever going to hear this, uh, one of my hunters, a good friend of mine's son, uh, the first morning we went out, he was shooting a 20 gauge. And uh, he was limited out in an hour. And each each of the three hunters was keeping their own limits, whereas normally we just keep a group limit. But uh, anyway, uh, with that 20 gauge, uh, 15 shots, he had 15 birds down. And that was right after early snow. So the bird hunting was easy. Well, the next day the snow was melted, but he went out and he decided to carry a 410. Okay, seven, the first seven birds he shot, he feathered, but we didn't recover any of them. And I made the comment about that 20, that 410 was so wasteful. And it hurt his feelings, and I never guided him again. I guided his dad all the time, but never him. But uh, that's the difference between the 410. I hate 410 unless it's in the hands of a really good shooter. Like Rick, it's great. Jerry Eddins wasn't the nicest guy in the world, but uh, he is probably the best shooter I've ever seen on wild quail. He used to shoot a humpback browning. And three days, three hunts, he shot five birds out of a covey rise three times in a row. Wow. And uh, with that humpback browning. We don't even like to talk about that these days as precious as quail are. But no, because yeah. we don't like killing birds. Back then, that was the big deal. But I wanted to recover every bird we shot. As a matter of fact, you know, at Crooked River, a lot of times if I was hunting a pasture and had to drive through three, three other pastures, they would flag all the dead birds. And I had that big short hair named Bear. You've probably seen him. They called him Tripod because he was always limping on one foot. Sometimes you'd limp on two foot at the same time, one front and one rear. It'd just be going on two fit, feet. Well, anyway, he was one hell of a dead bird dog. And a lot of times, Alan and some of the other guys, uh, Moon, uh, I'd pick up three or four of their birds on the way back to the lodge. You well, know, that they'd marked for, they had a dead bird in the area. They, uh, those of us that have been fortunate to have a good dead bird dog, mine was yeah. Mine it was makes little, one tremendous difference. Mine was little Annie, and and I hunt with twenty eight gauge, and uh, 
Paul Melton, who uh, carries some weight in the quail hunting world, uh, Paul yes. says, and I quote, if you if you shoot a 28 gauge, you better have a damn good retriever, end quote. And I told him that I had a good retriever back then. But yeah, it's it's appreciated. And uh, again, typically 20 gauge or larger is what most people probably ought to be carrying. Yes. Of the 28 gauges, like Milton, I haven't seen you shoot that much, but you, uh, when when Rick Snipes could could see, you know, that's all they needed. But you take the average Joe, I mean, why kill three quarters of your birds when you can kill all of them? Right. Uh, moving on to, we're kind of beginning to begin our final descent here. So I'm looking at my notes here. Can't talk about everything that I got written down here. Um, Bob, what, what do you, and that's something talking kind of about factors that are working on the quail population. And I guess, let me start off by what would you on a scale from one to 10, what would you give this year's crop in that Stonewall County area in the sand hills there where you're at? I'm I'm leaning on a three. Where so I got, considered last year and the year before ones. Yeah, I've been telling people it's gonna be the best year we've seen since seventeen. But um, and you know we've kind of we got spoiled by fifteen sixteen, and we've been spoiled yeah. we've been spoiled in the other way over the last five. So it can be, it can't it can be average and it's gonna look really good after the doubles yeah. that we've uh, gone through. I'm gonna say on a on a lifetime average we're gonna be weaker than average substantially weaker than average but it's going to be better best it's been in the last several years yeah i agree with you what uh if i say the word varmints and i'm talking about all together what do you yeah. think what do you think the impact of varmints is on quail and, and and do you recommend an intensive trapping program okay trapping i think it's very successful but it ain't a one-time deal it's a continuous trapping program is it's going to work but it's got to be continuous because otherwise all these predators are going to move to the best hunting and as you trap it out you're going to have predators move right back in and uh the, i hope y'all listened to the uh, podcast last month where, where i had john polarski and we talked in depth about predator control and the same you know, it's got to be intensive and it's got to be continuous because if if not, you're just digging a hole in the ocean, especially yep, relative, that's things exactly like, right. relative things like raccoons. Now let's talk about some of the factors that have uh, really increased the feral hogs and the raccoons. And I always point at the deer feeders. What are your it's thoughts It's the number there? one factor. The deer feeders, our coon population will reach the maximum they can feed in the worst time of year, which is winter time. Okay, by putting deer feeders out, you're feeding all these coons that would die. So you make it make them go through that part of the year, which they rebreed. We, you know, I've coon hunted all my life. I love hounds. But uh, we've got 10 times as many coons now as we did when I was a teenager. Yeah, this has got to be the the best of times for uh, for coon hunters yeah. if, you, if you can get access to the property to do it with dogs. Kind the of downside is there's not access to the property like there used to be. It used to be you could hunt, coon hunt anywhere, and there wouldn't anybody would say anything about it. Now you know everybody's got deer hunts. They're afraid of dogs getting run coons also. But the big thing is when you're feeding deer, you're feeding coons and keeping them alive, and 
I think they've got a tremendous impact on your quail and turkeys population. Aflatoxins in deer corn. What are your thoughts there? I don't think it's a problem anymore. We had a few years there that it was wiping us out. But uh, now almost all the corn you buy is aflatoxin tested. Okay. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think it's a factor to the, in today's time. One of the most topical issues right now are the eye worms and the medicated feed that we're about to have. And it has been uh, registered and will be available here within the next several months. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay. I think worming is, we worm our dogs, we worm our cattle. Worming is good. I don't think it's the total package. You know, don't get me wrong. I believe in the worming. But everything that's good has something bad about it. When we're worming our quail, we're worming our rats. Mice, who are probably bigger quail predators than, not bigger than coons, but they're right up there. To when, every, when we're worming our quail, we're worming our rats, too. To every action, there are many reactions. That's what I call Rollins' exactly. revision of Newton's third law of motion. So, yeah, we, it, and so it, it's going to take some additional study. But while we're on that note, real quickly, uh, the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation has teamed up with the University of Georgia and several other a players, and we're going to be doing a landscape level quail research on the medicated feed starting hopefully as early as next April, but we may not be able to get it started till the next fall. I say that we're looking for study sites and we need study sites that are a minimum of 15,000 acres. And so if, if that uh, piques your interest, uh, give me a, an email, drollins at quailresearch.org. We'd love to come and, and lay out our plans to you and see if. Uh, if we might be a fit, and you might be a fit for us, kind of thing. I've got about 13,000 acres. And, uh, of course, I bought a rich night's 7,000 acres. And uh, I, when we did, when you did the eyeworm context, Rick didn't realize I wormed my quail, too. <laughs> and it wasn't exactly legal, but I did worm our quail on our side, so we... We tested his quail against my quail to see how the the fecal and eye worms differed. And there was just a minor difference, but it wasn't a fair. Wasn't a true control. Yeah. It wasn't a true control. We needed to, to run the test group that hadn't been wormed. And, you know, I know it wasn't legal for quail, but it was available as, as chicken and hog wormer. All right. Well, like I said, we, we're looking forward to, and this will be a large-scale effort, uh, three-year, three to four-year effort on replicated in three different areas of the state. So, uh, again, yeah, collectively, I've got about 12,000 acres. Okay, uh, one or two other things, on, and I'm just giving the list of basically factors that really impinge on quail or can. Uh, what do you think about overgrazing? Okay, calcs. The worst thing you can do for quail is graze. And I got this, this quote from you, and it's one of my favorites. The second worst thing you can do is not graze. Okay. I think grazing is a good thing if very minor year-round grazing, but the best thing on grazing would be to graze, slash graze for two, maybe three months of the year, and then leave it open the rest. They need to do, it takes a few years, 
land gets grass bound. We're just now seeing it real bad. And, uh, you know, when you get too much grass, it crowds out the forbs. Of course, no grass is no good. But I feel like grazing, overgrazing, which average place is overgrazed, is the worst thing you can do for quail. But the second worst thing you can do for quail is not graze, period, over a period of three to five years. So, again, you're basically calling for the idea of grass sculpting, uh, you know, seasonal stocking and uh, being able yes, to. Yes, seasonal stocking, I think, is the best thing you could possibly do. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, Bob, do you have other hypotheses that have impacted the quail and kind of fed the quote-unquote quail decline in, in your area? I feel like these droughts and heat has done it. You know, when, when I was growing up, if we had three or 400 degree days in a row, it made the papers. Now we'll go a month and not have a day less than 100 degrees. Yeah, so no I feel like these overheat. I, you know, I'm I'm really shocked that we've got as good a quail population as we've gotten this year. At least yes. at the research ranch, given the torrid conditions that we've endured. I mean, we had a nice May and June, but as you know, it's been nothing but 100 degree yeah. heat to mid-September after that kind of thing. But our, our birds are actually, have, our, we had good nesting, and our survival yeah. has been some of the highest we've recorded. So Exactly. Their survival has been great. Uh, and I'm seeing some half-grown birds, which means they hatched during that heat spill, which I thought wouldn't have happened. Maybe because they had so much cover, I don't know. But also, you know, I've seen hatches in September. Yeah, I don't we, know if this ranch quick enough to get us a late hatch, but if we can get that late hatch, we could actually have a decent quail year. I'm not particularly. The way I'm looking at it, we got barely huntable numbers. Yeah, I'm not particularly optimistic that we'll see uh, enough of a late hatch to be meaningful. But uh, y'all stay tuned and. Uh, we still have quite a few birds radio marked, and we'll keep it posted as far as what we see. Bob, let's bring it to a close here. You're 72 years old. You've enjoyed a wonderful life. And, uh, again, uh, Jeremiah Johnson meets Crocodile Dundee kind of lifestyle. What's your outlook for the future of quail hunting? We're going to have to have a change in weather patterns. You know, we need winter rains. We haven't had winter rains in years. Winter rains make quail. Yep. I totally agree with you on that, too. As I often say, drought cocks the hammer and rain pulls the trigger. If the weather forecasters are right, we should have an El Nino this winter. And so I'm optimistic at least about next year. We'll see. I am, too. This is going to be the best chance we've had. So uh, we, we hope that's the case. Bob, anything else you want to share with us this morning? Uh, no, sir. I can't think of a thing except for one thing I want to put out. I do not feel like you can hurt birds by hunting them. You yes. can only hurt them with weather conditions or overgrazing. Hurting cannot hurt birds. I wanted to say that because, you know, when I, I was talking about barely huntable numbers, I'm talking about huntable for people to have good hunts. Right. You know, if, if you find one covey a day, you know, they're going to fly far. They're going to run bad. When birds get thick, then they don't fly as far and they don't run as bad. Well, we're probably, uh, again, in the mid-range right now, but we hope we get back to maybe a 2014, maybe even a 15 kind of year next year if we have a good broom I, week crop. 
I hope so. You know, we went all them bad years in a row, and then all of a sudden, you know, 15 and 16 were the best I've seen in my lifetime. Right. And I'd about given up on it. As had most of us. Uh, we had people, including many of my board members, basically ready to throw in the towel in uh, 2012 kind of thing. Uh, but bless the Lord here. It came the rains in 14, 15, 16, 15, 16, best two years I've ever seen in my 50 years of quail hunting. Well, Bob, we really appreciate you taking time. I've enjoyed, I've been wanting to, to record you for a long time. I learned a lot about you that I didn't know. And I, I hope that our listeners have enjoyed some of your stories and your, your escapades and so forth. Um, appreciate you taking the time and effort. And I look forward to, I look forward to seeing you when you bring that porcupine to us here. I'm going to make every effort to get that porcupine. Okay. I may go down to San Angelo tonight. Okay. Well, you, you keep me posted on that. And again, that's October 21st is when we, we hope to hold that, uh, Porcupine avoidance training. Let me just close that okay. up, uh, again with uh, we got the quail season opening in about two weeks, and uh, I always solicit your hunting reports uh, via Facebook or email or whatever. You are you as our hunters are are our eyes and ears to what's going on out there, just like Barefoot's been for many many years. So if you see something odd out there, snap a photo of it, give me some details. I'm always anxious to hear what those reports are. I'll be and, sure and call you if I see any bumblebee birds. Okay. That sounds good. And Gary, with that, uh, we might've run just a little over time, but I know it was interesting and the listeners are going to enjoy it. So uh, Gary, we're turning it back to you in the studio and look forward to visiting with y'all next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Bob, for sharing so much about your unique adventures and insights. Here's wishing everyone a safe and enjoyable time afield this quail hunting season. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.